This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 46 with Jeff Staple. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onken, and on this show, we're bringing you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneurial lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. What is up, Shop Talk Creatives? Today we bring to you Mr. Jeff Staple. And if you don't know who he is, he is the man in New York City. He is a front runner on New York street culture and street culture in general. He's first and foremost a designer. He does graphic design and art direction, creative direction, all that good stuff. But he also has a clothing design company called Staple Pigeon. And if you know anything about New York and street culture, Staple Pigeon is one of the original brands in street culture. And Jeff has pioneered that. He also is the founder of this place called the Reed Space in the Lower East Side, Manhattan, which is a really cool curated street culture shop that's been around for probably 10, 15 years now. And he is the curator of that. I've been going to that place since uh, before I lived here. So if you ever visit New York, that's one of the hidden gems. So you should definitely check that out. Jeff has also collaborated with many big brands on sneakers, uh, Nike, Puma, Clark's, Burton Snowboards, Converse, you name it. He um, has worked for all of them with his design company. And and for the sneakerheads out there, he's done many collaborations with different brands that have sold out within 30 minutes of going on sale, uh, the lines going around the block. In this podcast, we talk about Jeff's growing up with Asian ancestry and going against the grain of what his parents willed or wished him to do and jumping into the creative field and what that took from him. We also hear about his near-death experiences and how that changed his life, changed his perspective in the design world and what really matters. Jeff is a very hardworking creative. He's won many awards and I'm excited to bring this to you. So let's jump in. What's up, everyone? I've got... Jeff Staple in the house today. We're in his studio in New York City in Manhattan. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you. Welcome to my humble abode. Very cool what you got going on in here. It looks like you've been you've been hard at work for years. Yeah. I, I've been this is a what you're seeing in my office now is like a collection of crap that I've accumulated over the last 15, <laughs> 15 18 years. Looks like you like a lot of little little uh toy toy figurines. Yeah, toys are fun. Anything to keep yourself young, I think is is inspiring to me, you know, just, I want to be a kid forever. Yeah. So I think the office exudes that. I think that's a good energy to have. Yeah. You can tell, uh, you can see it here in the office. Well, maybe we'll snap a couple of photos and people can take a look at it online. For sure. So let's just get started. I want to talk about, let's like, give us a little background where you're from and we can talk about staple design. We can talk about the read space, which mm-hmm. both are very cool, but I want to have everybody hear from you, just kind of your story and how you came to be where you are now. Well, nothing really outstandingly special. You know, I was born um, in New Jersey, the middle of nowhere in Jersey, sort of like Freehold Township, New Jersey, which is about a 45 minutes outside of New York. I'm Chinese by descent, so I was born to uh, Asian immigrant parents who came here, you know, from China and Hong Kong. Uh, very sort of typical Asian upbringing where they really just wanted, you know, me to get a good education, get my college degree, and then hopefully be like a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. 
you know, and that was really the path that they had set for me for my life. <laughs> and so you came here, so you started in design. Yeah. I mean, actually I went to school. If, um, if you want to back up a bit, I went to, I first went to NYU for journalism. Got um, it. So that was after high school in Jersey, I moved to New York. I knew I always wanted to move to New York. My parents lived, uh, I mean, my parents worked in New York and they lived in Jersey. So I would go to New York city all the time. And I just was infatuated with the energy since I was really, really young, you know, just trying to get into as much trouble as possible in the streets of New York, you know, trying to find like mixtapes and like, you know, going to places to skate and stuff. Like I was just always looking for that inspiring thing, I think. Um, so I knew from like middle school, I told my mom, like, I'm going to New York university. Like, there's no way I'm not going to a New York city based school. And I love the fact that NYU was like within the city, like, you know, Columbia and Cornell are like in New York, but they're walled off. You know what I mean? Like they don't, yeah. they're not part of the city fabric. Um, so, you know, it was, it was important for me to, to want to really do a school that was like right in the heart of the city. So I knew NYU was always the thing for me. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So you grew up, what, what year were you coming to New, coming to New York at that time? So uh, 93. Oh, wow. Yeah. 1993. New York in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome to be here. And I mean, really raised in New York in the eighties and then went to college here in the nineties. But by the time I went to college, I was already pretty um, well-versed in the streets of New York, you know, and journalism was a degree that wasn't medicine and law, but that my parents thought, um, was acceptable, like was an acceptable form of education. Yeah. Mainly because on every news station, there's at least one Asian on every news channel, right? Like yeah. they have to have one token Asian on every single <laughs> news show. And so they're like, oh yeah, we love Connie Chung. Okay, this could be a good route for you. And I was like, cool. So journalism it is. And actually I was really into um, creative writing at the mm. time. So I figured journalism is like a way a creative writer could maybe get paid, you know, while they're working on writing. Yeah. So I was always into that. And really at this time in 93, when I went to NYU, I had, I had no inkling of wanting to be a designer. It wasn't even mm -hmm. a desire. I didn't even actually know that people could make a living doing a thing called design. <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. yeah. I didn't understand it at all. I thought art was like, if you wanted to be poor and cool, you do art. But there's not actually like, I didn't understand like art directors get paid hundred thousand dollars a year. Like I did not understand that at all. Didn't even know it existed. It's crazy, man. Yeah. yeah I, I started out as a graphic designer as well. That was my oh. first career. Yeah. What I went to school for. And that was back when they were doing the, it was called desktop publishing. Yep. <laughs> back in, I think that, yeah, Word. it was like mid nineties. Yeah. 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 That was my first job that desk. It's interesting that you say desktop publishing. Cause that was my first education and foray into design. So I was, I think I was a freshman in college and I needed a part-time job and I was looking in the job boards, um, for anything, you know, and there was a data entry clerk at a desktop publishing firm. So I was like, I oh, could do yeah. data entry. I have no idea what desktop publishing is. I don't care, but I could do data entry. Right. And it paid pretty good. It was like a 10 to $12 an hour job, which in college in the nineties is, a, is not minimum wage, which right. is like seven, you know? <laughs> so I was like, this is pretty good. I'll do this. So I went in for the interview and they were like, yeah, you just, we get phone calls. You just enter them in to this database. You make labels, do mailers and stuff. Right. And the, the only one catch was that they said, you have to do everything into Quark Express and Illustrator, which I was like, what the fuck is a Quark Express? Can I curse on the show? Yeah. Okay, yeah, fine. Go for so it. I was like, I have a, well, what's a Quark Express? And they're like, oh, we'll teach you these things. And I was like, okay, cool. So they taught me Quark Express and Illustrator in order to do data entry work because the owner 
refused to use Microsoft Office apps. He like hated Word and Excel and stuff. <laughs> so by essence, I was learning these graphic design applications, but for doing desktop publisher, but for doing data entry. And then, you know, there was other design graphic designers working in the studio. And then I started to observe like, whoa, these guys, they're just like making cool graphics and doing cool logos and stuff. And they're getting paid. Like, I was like, this is pretty cool. Um, and I actually went, I was so sort of infatuated with it that I went back to NYU to try to take classes in some of this stuff. And at mm. the time, NYU didn't offer a design program. There was no graphic design program at NYU back then. Um, so I was like, man, that really sucks. And as I, I spent more time at this, at this firm, uh, I really wanted to get into it, which prompted me to eventually drop out of NYU, um, and then transfer to Parsons School of Design. Oh, wow. Yeah. Parsons, as you know, is only like 10 blocks away from NYU geographically, but yeah. like it's a whole different world. It's not, you know, this sort of liberal arts program. It's like specialized, one of the best art schools in the world. Oh, wow. So I, I made the jump, tried to apply, got in and then uh, and then made it to Parsons and, and have two, did two years at NYU with nothing to show for it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, not, not making the Asian parents happy. Though. <laughs> that's a, that's a curious subject. I mean, I hear a lot of, I talked to, I have a lot of Asian friends with immigrant parents and yeah. there's always that struggle between the parents wanting them to do the, the regular real jobs. Mm -hmm. And I guess for lack of better words, but what was that like for you kind of going against the grain? Cause it sounds like you were, you it were up really against hard. that. Yeah. I mean, it was just, you have to you have to get to a point where like even if you don't you could try to make them understand what you're trying to do but i hate to sound like a pessimist but in reality you're really not going to make them understand you know mm -hmm. like they don't come from that world or you know why why would they understand it you know what i mean they didn't have friends who were artists or designers or there was no concept of like making a living from being creative or following your dreams you know it's like people of that generation uh you work to make money and then you use that money to then hopefully do something in your dreams. You know what yeah. I mean? But it, doing it at the same time, no, you, you're not allowed to do that. Like people don't get to live that way. Yeah. Um, so trying to get them to understand it is very difficult. And eventually, you know, you just have to decide to make a break. You have to basically say, fuck what you think I'm doing it anyway. You don't mm -hmm. have to say that, but in your mind, you have to think that, Yeah. you know? And so that's what I did. I dropped at NYU. My my mom was super, super disappointed. And then to drop out of NYU and then go to an art school is like, <laughs> she just thinks, oh, so you just want to fuck off and like be lazy and like draw pictures all day and think you get a degree for it. Yeah. And to be honest, I thought art school was going to be easy. <laughs> I thought art school was going to be way easier than, than NYU, but art school is way harder. Like Parsons was so hard compared to NYU. Yeah. Like NYU, you could like, and I think this is true for most regular colleges. Like you could pretty much goof off the whole day or the whole semester and just crash study the night before. And you'll probably get like a C you, you could scoot by, you know, with just like memorizing everything you need to know two hours before the test and just like, just like get it all down on paper. Yeah. And you'll probably get away with like a passing grade. You can't do that at art school. It's like a process, you know, yeah. like you have to show concept ideation, inspiration, mm. sketch work. And if you skip one of those, when you put the thing on the wall, it's very evident who didn't do their homework, <laughs> you know, and you could try to play off the whole like, oh, this is negative space. So I decided to go with all white, you know, like and the, you could get away with that once, but like, you're not going to do that every single time. Right, you, know? you eventually right. got to do work. So I found, I found art school way, way harder. And again, trying to convince my, 
my parents of that, that like, this is not a, a cop out or an excuse to goof off. It's really me pursuing my dreams. It was, it was hard. And there was actually a lot of, a lot of time where like, we weren't really talking, you know, mm -hmm. there was no support financially from them either. You know, yeah. I was, I was paying for one of my own credit cards, like re maxing wow. out my own cards and stuff. Um, and yeah, it just so happens that while I was at Parsons, that's where I started staple as a brand. Mm. Yep. Mm. So what advice would you give to people in that situation? Um, you know, I'm not telling people to have an estranged relationship with their parents, but I do think that you have to be able to just, um, in order, in order to live a life where you're living your dream, there's a lot of sacrifice that has to be made. And, um, I'm a firm believer in the, in the fact that you cannot make yourself happy if, uh, if you can't do that by trying to make other people happy, mm. you know, like people want to make their mom and dad happy. They want to make their husband and wives happy. They want to make their kids happy or their girlfriend and boyfriend happy. But if you yourself are not first happy, I believe that like you scientifically, like metaphysically cannot make others happy if you are not happy. Yeah. You know, it's like, to me, it should be like a law of inertia or like, you know, two things cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I think, you cannot make other people happy if you're not happy. Yeah. Point blank, you know? And so I came to that realization that like, damn, I can't make my parents happy if I'm not happy. So first I have to make myself happy. It may make others unhappy for now, but I'll get to them. Mm -hmm. Let me first take care of myself. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think that that's a selfish mentality to live by, but it's really not. It's, it's really like you do have to take care of yourself first before you can take care of others, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, when you fly on a plane and then they say like when, when there's lack of oxygen, like they, the mask comes down. Yeah. What do they always say? They always say, put your mask on first. Before. Exactly. I don't care if your kid's there or your infant baby. If you don't put that mask on yourself first, you can't do shit for other people because you will be passed out. You know, so it's like a fact, like yeah. you got to take care of yourself first, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's something that I learned and I was just like, I, I, I hate to do this to you, mom and dad, but like. I'm dropping out of NYU, going to Parsons. And then actually the harder thing was when I dropped out of Parsons. <laughs> so I'm a double dropout. Oh no. Yeah. Four years of school with no degree to show for it and dropping out of Parsons so that I could pursue a potential job in designing my own streetwear line. Not going to go over <laughs> real well. Not to mention that like this was in 1996 and there was no streetwear. Streetwear wasn't a thing yet. You know, there was no like hype beast or trade show or like there was no industry. It yeah. was literally like, you know, I knew 20, I knew the 20 people that were doing streetwear back then. I wow. knew them all on a first name basis. So there was no industry to speak of. So here I am, I'm going to quit school. I'm going to pursue this thing. And it's not even like they were just scratching their head. Like, where did we go wrong? <laughs> They're just like, where did we go wrong with this child? That's yeah. so funny. So, so what did that take from you to like, quit school and jump into starting your own brand. And when you're actually just going through school and learning. Yeah. I, I, I talk to a lot of um, aspiring entrepreneurs now. And I think one of the things for me when I started the brand and really went full force into it was the fact that it wasn't a decision-making process. There was no possibility of not doing it, you know? So to me, when people say like, when did you decide that you were going to give up everything and do staple. That's kind of like if someone asked you like, when did you decide to um, inhale oxygen and blink? Like, it's not really a decision. Like I just had to do it. There was no 
possibility of me living a life where I wasn't doing something that I love to do. Yeah. You know, and I think that if you overanalyze what it is that you do want to do, so let's say you have an idea that you want to do X. And for the past year, you've been weighing the pros and the cons of whether you want to do X. Mm -hmm. I believe that very likely doing X is not meant for you. Mm. It's not to say that it won't work out. If you decide after that year of processing pros and cons, I'm going to jump in and do X. I'm saying you could maybe be successful at it, but the thing that you really, really, really should be doing, you won't take the year to decide. Like, it'll just be like that. You're just going to do it, you know? Yeah, you have the passion for it. Yeah. It's jumping into a pool and not knowing whether there's water in it or not. Mm. I was going to jump no matter what. That's good. That's yeah. a good, that's the mindset you need. Yeah. And you probably have to have the passion for it. 100%. You have to have a passion and you really have to be, I mean, for, for a business, I don't know about all businesses, but the business that I'm in, I know, like you have to be willing to give up your life for it, you know, sacrifice mm. everything for this, you know, friends, family, loved ones. Um, you have to be willing. I'm not saying you have to give it up, but you have to be willing to give it up. Yeah. Maybe you could figure out a way to skirt through and be able to retain everything, mm -hmm. but there's a ton of sacrifice in this. And I think a lot of people aren't ready for those sacrifices, even personal sacrifices. I'm saying like, you know, nine, to, this ain't a nine to five, this ain't a Monday <laughs> through Friday job, you know? So I don't, most people don't even want to give up their nights and weekends for this. Not to mention like, no, you're not having a kid. Like, no, you, you know, you're going to have a lot of fights with your spouse, you know, like <laughs> all these things, like your friends are going out tonight and like, you can't go because you got to finish this thing for your own job. Like all of these things are things that you have to sacrifice and give up if you want to really follow your dreams, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So for those, for the people that, I mean, not have heard of Staple, like, can you give us a good overview of it? I mean, right. it was, I have, a, I have a pretty big audience that's like... For those people, they're thoroughly confused at this point. <laughs> yeah, what is Staple? We've been talking for how, however many minutes yeah. and like, so yeah, what, what so is Staple? Staple is, um, I founded Staple in 97 as a small clothing line. It's a small, it was a small line of t-shirts. Mm. Um, now, 18 years later, Staple is a full menswear collection. Mm. Uh, we're distributed all over the world in both the world's best boutiques as well as um, the biggest retailers and, and chain stores as well. Mm. So um, that's, what's, that's one thing that I do is the clothing line. We also have Staple Design Studio, which is a creative agency that mm. was formed at the same time as Staple. Um, to take on all the client work that we were getting. So a lot of people wanted us to do their logos, whether it was like uh, a band logo or an album cover or a poster or whatever. <laughs> we got a lot of requests to do stuff like that. Yeah. So I didn't want to give that up. So I continued to build on having like a, a design workshop and sort of boutique agency, I would call it. Mm -hmm. um, but now and today we've got global clients as well. We've worked with like Nike, with, you know, Microsoft, Pepsi, uh, Timberland, like, you know, global national oh, wow. corporations, Toyota, AT&T, State Farm, insurance, like, yeah. so we do creative and ideation and consulting for all of these uh, companies and brands as well. Um, so those are the two big things. And then uh, in 2002, five years after I started the brand, uh, I founded a, a retail store essentially called Reed Space, R-E-E-D mm. Space. And uh, Reed Space was really the first multi-brand lifestyle boutique of, of its time. Um, so if you can sort of imagine back in 2001, 2002, opening a store that sold clothes, footwear, accessories, but also art, books, magazines, had art shows, had a music section, had a gallery with rotating artists, um, all coming out of one physical space. Um, that was really innovative back then. Now, 
you know, if you go to Urban Outfitters or whatever, they do the same thing. But Read Space was really the first one to do that, and mm. and because of that, we, you know, twelve years in, we're still cemented as like an innovator in in retail design. You know, it's amazing. I've yeah. been to the space. It's it's very oh, cool. Oh, thanks. Cool. Yeah, it's actually funny because it's one of the first spaces that somebody showed me. I think even before I moved here. Nice. Yeah, yeah. it's one of those spots that like you know, if you visit New York, you have to check out Read Space. Yeah, know? it's like the hidden gem. You're yeah, like, you got it's a place where I always send people when they come here. I'm like, cool. you gotta Thank go. You. you gotta go check out Read yeah. Space. It's like dope little like, streetwear. Right. Street, we like, try to culture. like give people a little discovery that you know they might not have known about, whether it's like a little zine or a clothing line or a piece mm. of art. Um, so those are the three things that I basically do, the clothing line, the design studio, and then the retail store. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. it's awesome. So what, what do you play? What role do you play in each of those? I mean, how much, you know, day to day, obviously you're one person. I know mm-hmm. you have a whole team, but where's your role within all of this? So I'm the founder of all three. Mm-hmm. Um, they all operate as quite separate organizations. Okay. Uh, and it's kind of morphed that way. And I think it's better for it where each one has its own teams and each one has its own leaders. Mm. Um, so I act as the, I would call it the executive creative director of all three. Got so it. I'm the creative director of, of each individual division, but each division has its own design head. So there's mm. a, there's a head designer of the clothing line. There's a head buyer, head manager of read space. Um, I still sort of sit as the, the top designer under staple design studio but I have like an army of freelancers and stuff that we work with on that as well. So, you know, like you said, unfortunately, no matter how great a company is or, or how innovative your brand is, um, there's still only 24 hours a day and seven days in a week. You can't, I haven't yet figured out a way to maximize on beyond that. You know, I haven't hacked the the day yet. (laughs) Um, so, and, and you also need to sleep somewhere around there, you know, you got to get sleep in there at least four hours. Um, (laughs) so, you know, the only way to really be able to do all this stuff is with a great team. Mm. And all together, there's like about 40 people um, in all three companies. Oh, wow. Um, and it's all just sort of touching everybody and making sure everyone's, uh, you know, following the same page and fighting the good fight, you know, yeah. um, and spreading that that thing. I, mean, I think the the only thing that actually connects all three companies is our is our tagline Mm. which is um, a positive social contagion that's our sort of motto if you will and that is the only thing so a lot of people walk in the read space and they don't know that the founder of read space also founded staple pigeon which is the clothing line or staple design studio the Mm. design agency but they know about staple pigeon they just don't know that there's a connection which i love yeah and that's why i deliberately sort of form the companies separately but if you are observant, you'll notice that like the tagline is the same between the three. So that's really the only clue that all three are owned by the same person. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So what's your vision for all of all three companies or for, I mean, personally for you, and then obviously that extends into your three businesses. Personally for me, well, it's, it's morphed a lot recently because um, I would say for the first 15 years of doing this, it was really just how do I keep my head above water? Right. It was like, just how do I survive Mm -hmm. and keep this business going when, you know, just looking around left and right in my industry, you just see companies folding left and right. Yeah. You know, so it's like tough times, like 10 brands fold, you know, this guy folds, this store folds, this guy just filed for bankruptcy. Like, so it's just like, literally like, I'm just like, how do I get my head over water? (laughs) You know, like you're just treading water. Yeah. Um, Recently after sort of the 15th year, I guess, street culture sort of took on a tipping point of 
not being a trend anymore, I would say. Like people were like, okay, this thing is here to stay. Like there's, yeah. it's like an industry now. There's, you know, like I mentioned briefly before, there's like, you know, blogs and, and magazines and, and trade shows and whole entire retail stores that are dedicated to this culture now. Mm. Lots of players in it now. And because I've been in it from so long, I think I've been not deliberately sort of, it's been pushed by natural forces that like I've been sort of acting as like a spokesman for this industry, mm. you know? So anytime like there's a creative conference or like if a, if a corporation needs to learn something about street culture, like I'm typically one of the people that are called in to, to talk on behalf of the culture yeah. and understand the mindset, you know? So that for me has been happening a lot recently. And then for the businesses, um, just continued uh, solid sort of growth. You know, I'm not very risk averse when I'm when I'm doing business. I'm very sort of like uh, baby steps, and mm. I'm very calculated in terms of my growth. Yeah. Um, and it's it's paid off. I don't want to take too much of a of a major step. So like the clothing line, you know, just continuing growth on the clothing line. Um, size of the collection is great. I like it where it is. Distribution. We're looking at different regions that sort of don't have staple yet, and we're looking at yeah. that. Design studio, I'd love to fortify it a little bit more. Um, I'm sort of 50-50 on that because I don't know if you've, you must have had experience working in like big ad agencies and stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really want to be that. Yeah. It's, it's important for me that I still do what makes me happy. As I said earlier, that's the number one thing for me. And waking up every day, I want to still be excited to wake up and do my job. I don't want to ever get to a place where I've founded something that I hate going to. Right. That would be a real failure on my part, you know? Mm. And I've lived that life. I know exactly what it feels like to wake up and look at your alarm clock and hate life. You know, I've, I've lived most of my life, you know, because I've been working since I was 13 years old. Wow. So I know what that feels like. And, I, and the second staple feels like that, I'm going to make a massive change. And so far, mm. so good. It's good to be aware of that. Yeah, it's, a, it's my barometer, really, you know? Yeah, you know? I can totally relate. I mean, I... I've been wanting to like, how do you grow, but still stay balanced enough, yeah. small enough to where you still are free. Yeah. And conversely, not only the, the wake up test, but also the, the going home test. So like, I know mm. people who like at 501, they're in the elevator out the door. Right? Yeah. They like cannot wait at for 459 to hit. So they could just start packing up and going <laughs> home. Like I'm still of the mindset where I dread having to like shut down. Mm. Like I'm, you know, on my laptop, on my sofa, I don't care if it's 4am. Like the only thing that's really making me go to sleep is the sensibility that like, I should really probably go to sleep now as an adult, <laughs> you know, like the sun's coming up. So as long as I'm still doing that, I still feel like, okay, good. This is still something that I really am passionate about and want to do. And it's still definitely like that. So I feel blessed that I, I still am on a path to, to living like that way, you know? It's good. Yeah, it's yeah, good. So what is, what does success mean to you then? Success is simply just doing something every day that makes you happy. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really basically it. I think um, a lot of people equate success to financial success and, you know, monetary goals. And that's definitely great. I love money. You know, I love, <laughs> I love things. I love pretty things, you know, like everyone else. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm not like, you know, some Gandhi, like, you know, dispose of all my personal belongings and stuff. But I think the first thing has to be happiness, you know, and with that, with that happiness, you can then, if you want to buy a Mercedes, you can. If you want to donate 100K to Greenpeace, you can, you know, but you need to first 
be happy to even be able to get the means of of getting the money or the or the access to be able to being able to do something like that yeah. you know so what i mean what is being happy or what is happiness um you're like that kid now where you're just going to say like well what why is the sky blue why right <laughs> <laughs> exactly um what is happiness is uh whew. there's something very um innate about being content with everything in your life you know mm. um there's a there's definitely like a moment of enlightenment when that happens mm. when uh you look in the mirror and you sort of are like this is like life is pretty awesome you know and it's again it's not because of a monetary thing it's not because you drive a certain thing or you're rocking certain clothes or it's not because you just came back from a from a vacation but you just look in the mirror like i think i suggest everyone look in the mirror and like for a good five minutes and just stare at their own eyes for five minutes every once in a while and just really check yourself mm. and be like, are you really living life the way you want to live life? Right? So here's a good barometer, a, you know, a good test. If a doctor told you, you have six months to live, would you feel like you've made a lot of mistakes and regretted a lot of things? And when you go leave that doctor office and start being like, okay, bucket list. We got to get this. I'm jumping off a cliff, skydiving. Like I got to do all the shit that I never wanted to do. If that's the case, you're currently not living the life you want to be living. Mm. You know, if a doctor told me you have six months to live, I would, I shit you not. I'd be like, cool. Like I've lived so many incredible lives. I deserve to go. Like I've taken too much goodness out of life already <laughs> that like, I feel bad. Like I feel kind of greedy about it, you know? Yeah. So I fully deserve to die. And there's not like, I would probably just go home and continue working on staple. <laughs> like there's not really anything that I do differently. Yeah. You know? That's a great place to be. Yeah. So I think ask yourself that question, you know, what would you do it differently? And like, so if you're at a job and you hate that job and then like, you know, you, uh, you know, what would you do if you hit the lotto or what would you do if your doctor said, you know, you had a day left to live fucking go into work and be like, I quit motherfucker. Like <laughs> maybe you should quit right now. Yeah. If, if I won the lotto, I'd be back at this chair tomorrow. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a real barometer, you know? That's a great barometer. I'd, yeah. I'd be doing what I'm doing now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's, that's a great way of putting it. Great advice. I think, but I think like 90% of the world lives the other way, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, so I have this joke where like whenever a corporation asks me to do a talk at their company, yeah, I give them a warning. I say, okay, I'll do a talk at your company, but I have to let you know that Every time I do a talk at a company, key people leave the company the next week, every single time. And without <laughs> fail, I'll do a talk at an agency or corporation and I'll get an email from four people. I just want you to say your talk was really amazing and I've decided to quit my job and resign <laughs> since your talk. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if I was like, if you, the, the person booking me, I'm like, if you want to lose your key people, <laughs> then you should have me talk at your company because I think people are like, they, they always have like one foot out the door and they're kind of like... I want to make a break, but something, you know, yeah. but the money, but the 401k, but the pension, you know, but the benefits, right? Mm -hmm. But they, they have one foot out the door and I think they just need a little nudge to like have them go. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, hearing someone who's done it is the nudge that they need. Mm -hmm. What's well, a huge cliff to jump off of? It's not. Life goes on. <laughs> There's no shame in the game. Like, you know what? Life, like drive an Uber, work at Starbucks. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's all, it's really like, all of it is ego. All of it is like, you know, if I lose this, 
then my kid can't go to this school. I can't drive this car and I can't live in this neighborhood. That's all ego. Yeah. Like you will live, like you can survive. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like when I started Staple, I lived on three packs of ramen a day, every day for like three years. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, like Grace Papaya, 99 cent hot dogs. That was me all day, every day. Dollar meal, all day, every day. Damn. Not healthy, but you can live, you know? So yeah, everything on top of survival is really sloth and gluttony. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's, it's not really, it's a, it's a huge hurdle to, to jump from, from a, from an egotistical standpoint. And I don't, and I don't, that word has, that's a very heavy, dirty word, egotistical. Yeah. But I just mean like from a, from a straight ego standpoint, it's a, it's difficult to cut that off. But if yeah. you really, I, I think like if, if I had to just drive a cab tomorrow, like explaining that to people is harder than actually driving the cab. Mm. Right. Yeah. Like driving a cab is no problem and you make a decent living. You can probably make 80 grand a year driving a cab. Yeah. But telling your wife or your mother that you're now driving a cab is really the thing that you don't want to do. Mm. You know? Yeah. Well, you have to bust through the ego and the bigger your ego, the, the bigger the jump. Yeah. 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 You know, and that's, that's different for everyone. I think, you know? Yeah. That's why, I, that's why I say like, just look in the mirror for a while, you know, like that's what baggage is really. It's like when, mm. when people say you have a lot of baggage, it means you have a lot of things that are weighing you down that aren't the necessary important things in life. That's really what baggage is. And I think if you, if people ask themselves more often, you know, what is holding me back? What is holding me down? They'll find that it's not themselves, but it's things that they put onto themselves, like, but they're exterior things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's great. So when you were starting Staple, I want to hear more about, um, kind of like the sacrifices that you had to go through in, in getting that engine up and running the ramen diet for, for yeah, food. My health went to shit for sure. <laughs> my health went to real shit. And one, one of the marks of success is that I've recently been able to take care of my health. So that's, <laughs> that shows that I've been, you know, improving a bit. There's so many, I mean, if you look at every aspect of human life, yeah. like it's, it takes a toll on you when you start your own thing. So one easy one is social life, right? Mm. So just going out, you know, the most basic thing, like happy hour with your friends. I haven't been to a happy hour with my friends in over 20 years. Actually, I haven't had a drink of alcohol in 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I haven't smoked in 20 years. Why? Because every minute that you are drunk or hungover is a minute you can't be working on your thing. Mm. So well, I don't want to do it. If it prevents me from doing what I want to do, I don't want to do it. That is some straight hustle right there. It's be, I'm, I'll take a bullet for this shit. You I know what it. I mean? I love that's, it. That's the mentality you have to have to win in this thing, you know? Yeah. So social life, I mean, loves, you know, number of loves lost because like, instead of going out with your lady, like I got to work on this thing. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people who, um, most people who, if you work a nine to five, you can't understand why somebody would want to work on a Sunday then. And I think to a lot of people who are like nine to fivers, if your mate wants to work on a Sunday, you might take that as an insult. Like, oh, you prefer working than hang spending time with me. But in their minds, let's say they work in a cubicle and they're like Dilbert, you know, <laughs> like in their mind, they're saying you'd rather work in a cubicle and push papers than spend time with me. That's really insulting. So you could see how... Mm -hmm. Uh, a nine to five or dating a, a hustler entrepreneur is like a very tough thing. And it's, it takes a lot for that sort of nine to five or to like get out of the nine to five mindscape and be like, I really respect what you're doing. And I'm going to give you the space and the time 
to pursue your dreams, even though it's not my dream and I don't get it. Yeah. That takes a very heady, elevated person. You know what I mean? So it's much harder to find a good, a good mate. Um, money, obviously. So <laughs> normal shit that people do, like save money, like, <laughs> you know, have a savings account, rainy yeah. day money, these things. No, everything goes back into the business. Yeah. You're not going to make money your first few years. So everything goes back in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of, I mean, every aspect, there's a sacrifice, basically. Yeah. Vacation, I, there's no vacations. No, there's no vacation. <laughs> what is that? Yeah. Yeah, no, I remember those years, too. I was eating pasta, living in a basement yeah. in Seattle, cut every expense. And I know. It's good times. I it love is those. Good. It makes you appreciate the times now. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And it, it, one thing, too, that I really appreciate is that because I've been through it now and that I've gone through that, the way I live life now there is, uh, I say I'll take a bullet for this, but basically what I mean is I will risk everything for this because mm. I know that I can go back to that if I needed to. Mm. I can go back to Grace Papaya and Ramen if I needed to. I wasn't born with money in my mouth, so it's not like if I don't have a Mercedes to drive, I'll like, what will I do? You know, like, no, like, I'll go back to skating and ramen and hot dogs if I needed to. In yeah. fact, it might even be more fun, you know? But um, More money, more problems. Yeah, exactly. But I sort of operate my life with uh, that mentality that any day, all of this can go away, mm. you know? Mm. Um, there was that, De I think it was a De Niro quote from a movie, from Heat maybe, right? Where he said like, if you can't walk away from this in 30 seconds flat, don't do it. Like, don't get attached to anything that you can't walk away from in 30 seconds flat. Ooh. That was the quote. So if it's your wife or your kid or whatever, I mean, this was like a, a gang movie. Yeah. But he was saying like, if you can't just take that and just walk away from 30 seconds, don't get involved with it. And mm. Staples, the same thing. Like, this whole thing can crash and burn tomorrow and I'll be totally fine. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I could just start over and do a new thing. <laughs> what would you My start? employees are really scared right now. Like they're like, shit, do we have right. a job tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. So, you know, you fast forward to now, like however many years later. Yeah. And you're in a different space, you're making money. And I, I mean, if you're anything like me, like you, you just talked about, I can afford to invest in my health and like, yeah. take care of myself. And what kind of things are you doing like emotionally and physically and health wise to take care of yourself? Because obviously like the hustle and the grind is so rigorous. Yep. Um, well, Staples 18 years old now. Wow. Okay. So I've been doing it as a business for 18 years. It's been in my head longer than that, but it's been incorporated for 18 years. So the first 15 or 14 years was spent, as I just said, everything into that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so my health and well-being completely went to shit, yeah. which is fine because if you're starting at young, you have the parachute of youth to sort of like yeah. land on, you know, but I was like 208 pounds, like 30% body fat, diabetic, you know, like full diabetes. Um, and then I got a trainer, changed my diet, yeah. nutritionist, changed my nutrition. And in three years, basically, in t actually in two years, I was able to undo what 15 years of, of like really fucking myself up, you know, had yeah. done. The human body is incredible. Like the repair, like, I don't know if you've heard this statistic of like, if you were a pack a day smoker for your entire life, your lungs are obviously fucked, right? But if you just stop smoking, like in one year, your lungs will pretty much go back to how they were pre-smoking. Wow. Just one year of cleansing. Like the, the repair rate of the body is incredible. And so... I actually went to the doctor two years after I started working out and he's like, 
it's really weird because you're not diabetic anymore, and I didn't give you any, I didn't prescribe you any medicine. He's like, I don't know what you're doing, but you, and you know, I've also lost like, I was like two, you know, two o five. I went down to like one sixty nine. You know, wow. yeah, body body fat went from like thirty percent <laughs> to like twelve percent. Yeah, you know, so it's like. I realized what, as I was, you know, getting into my thirties and like late thirties and into 40, I was realizing that like, it doesn't matter how hard I hustle. If I don't take care of myself physically and I drop dead at 45, what good does that do anybody? You know? So I really made it a point to, um, to address that. And I think they say this and a lot of people speculate on it, but I think it's absolutely true that when you take care of your health, your mind follows perfectly in line, you know? Mm. So once you start taking care of your well being, everything sort of lines up with that, like, you know, mental and physical go hand in hand. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What kind of, do you have any morning rituals or daily rituals that help keep you in a state of flow? Um, no, it's pretty much all work. <laughs> it's pretty much all work, but it's all, it's all work that I love still. So, yeah. um, I don't, uh, I don't do any sort of meditation or like stress relieving things, you yeah. know, um, I don't know why. I mean, again, I think it's like if you do stressful things to yourself all day long, mm-hmm. then you do need to meditate and stress relieve to get rid of that stress. Yeah. But if you do what you're loving all day long, then there's nothing that I really need to relieve myself of. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, I don't need to zen out or anything. I'm pretty much that all the time, you know. Yeah. Um, I actually went through, you know, uh, I highly recommend this to anybody but I went through a couple of near-death experiences. Oh, wow. Yeah, and if, if you get a chance, you should sign up for one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just don't go too far with it and end up dying. Yeah. But I was caught in two situations that were um, life-threatening. Oh, wow. Yeah, one was very, very long and prolonged, and one was very, very fast and instant. But the fact that I was able to experience these two things really puts anything that could possibly be deemed as stressful into perspective. Yeah. You know, so that's why I highly recommend anyone to have a near death yeah. experience. Was this something that happened a long time ago or was this No, like... in the past 10 years. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh wow. Yep. What what shifted for you in that moment? Well, in the prolonged one, I'll talk about the prolonged one because that's where you have time to think about it. It was mm-hmm. I was in the Andes mountains snowboarding mm-hmm. uh, and I had gotten lost in a whiteout and I was by myself. I had gotten separated from my from my crew of 8. And I was on my own in the Andes, wow, uh, which is the second largest mountain in the world next to the Himalayas. So 19,500 feet elevation. <sighs> and I was oh lost for seven hours until they had to send an expedition team to come get me. They finally rescued me 30 minutes before sunset. And if, I didn't, if they didn't find me within sunset, I would have died out there overnight, you know? Oh, my God. Yeah, so... I was lost for seven hours, and in that seven hours, I, I knew that there was a clock. I knew that the sun was setting, and once that sun hit below the mountain, it was done for me. So there was oh like God. a ticking thing going on. Um, and so at that moment, you're not thinking about work or stress or employees or, or clients or anything like that. You know, yeah. All that shit goes out the door. Now it's like hydration, nutrition, <laughs> You know, and that's pretty much it, right? Yeah. And I was I was hallucinating, and I was trying to fight off hallucinations. Wow. So like trying to keep your mind just like focused on the task at hand, which is survive one more minute. You know, and this is like harsh whiteout conditions. You know, and 
fast forward after the rescue and after you come home and it's surreal. I mean, I don't know if you've seen, if you've seen Castaway, Tom Hanks movie, Castaway, but you know, that scene where like he's, he's lost in the island for so long. He comes home and they like, they have a, a sushi platter for him. Right. So it's like, I come home after this rescue and it's like, back then it was, people were using AOL instant messenger. Right. So I come home, turn on the laptop, try to, you know, start working and nobody knows what's happened. Everyone's like pinging me like, yo, you've been gone for so long. Where's this? I need this deadline. Send me this file. What's going on with it? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, honestly, fuck y'all. Like, <laughs> you don't even know. Like, I, I dug my own grave. Like, I literally dug a hole and laid in it at one point. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I don't really like your, your disc can wait. <laughs> And of course, I think in the first week you come back, you're very like, fuck you and your problems, right? You're very much like that. Eventually, of course, I eased back into like normal momentum of life and like, yes, I understand your work is important and we have to, you know, collaborate and do shit together. I understand that. But I will never forget in the back of my head, me on a mountain for seven hours. I will, it always comes back to that when shit starts to hit the fan. It's like, wait a second, I'm getting stressed out but this is nothing compared to the stress I had there. Like that's real stress, you know? Wow. Yeah. That's, that's intense. It was very intense. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was even, there was one part where as I was trudging through the mountains, um, where every step I was taking went to my pelvic bone because of this depth of the snow. So it was oh. a leg in, pull the leg out, next leg in, right? There was wow. one point where I pulled my leg out of the snow and I hear running water. And I look down in the hole that my leg just made and I see a river, a raging oh. river. So I'm actually standing on like a snowbed that's above a, ri- a river. Oh my God. Yeah. So I'm like, no sudden movements, right? So I start like moving the other leg and then the hole gets bigger and bigger. Oh. As I'm making more movement, it's this hole is getting larger and I'm st- just, I'm seeing the river underneath, which just goes off the cliff. It just goes off the mountain, right? Wow. So now... I actually get to the point where I'm grappling the mountain like this, <laughs> oh like gosh. armpit in, right? I'm just holding on by my two arms. But every time I move, I'm making the hole bigger and bigger. Oh, shit. Yeah. So eventually I had to, I adrenaline kicked in and I climbed up that hole and then up the side of the mountain instead of going up the riverbed. But that's intense. Yeah. Wow. I'll give you a little did you know or a little tidbit of information. Yes, please do. I shit my pants there. <laughs> Oh my God. Literally. I shit my pants there. So I had to, in the middle of this whiteout mountain, because I shit my pants, <laughs> dangling over a raging river, right? That's the first time I've said that in public. But so I took, I had to take in that whiteout, I had to take my snow pants off, then throw away the underwear and then put the pants back on <laughs> with one less layer of clothing that like I oh, really desperately needed. My God. But I just, it's weird. Like the vanity in me was like, even though I'm surviving for my life, I can't walk around with shit in my underwear. Like I have to take that off. Like, you know, like who's going to care at that point, you know, but if they find me dead, I will not have shit in my pants. <laughs> but I think anybody in that situation probably would have done the yeah, same. Like I was like, oh, that's where the expression shit your pants comes from. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Yo, wow. seriously though, how many people in their normal everyday wow. life encounter a situation where it's so hectic they actually shit their pants? 
I've been there. <laughs> you would probably be the first person yeah. that I've talked to that has shit their pants because of a, or at least admitted to it. Yeah, and I was sober. Like I, people shit their pants when they're drunk, but <laughs> I was sober and I shit my pants. <laughs> you know, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, amazing. But, but you're I, here, you're here, you're here today. Yeah, sharing that to story. tell the story. Yep. Yeah. And uh, and again, if you can if you can have a uh, you know near death experience, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where you, you recommend it, but you don't recommend it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the other one time. was the other one was quick. So the other one was um, I was hit. I was riding a bike in Tokyo oh. on my bicycle, and I went headfirst, full speed into a, a Mack truck. What? Yeah, flew off the bike into the windshield and survived. Like no, not even a not even a bruise or a broken bone. <laughs> well, actually, a huge <laughs> a huge bruise, but no broken bone. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, How and that, that was just instant going down a hill bombing down a hill really fast looked this way looked to my right thinking because in new york in america that's where the traffic comes from and i forgot that the traffic is the other way so i'm looking right i'm clear don't stop at all go full speed as i turn the two headlights are already right in my face like yeah (laughs) i I just see like a big mac logo and like the two headlights here i'm already like in it and i just propel off the bike into the windshield and the bike like afterwards the the back wheel of the bike was in front of the front wheel of the bike what yeah it was a complete pretzel i rolled off driver comes out and like i literally thought i was dead like there because it was so painless as i laid on the street i was like oh there's no pain whatsoever so this must be death like this must be what it feels like to be dead because I don't feel anything wrong with me, but how could I not have everything broken? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so the, the truck driver comes out and he's super like, he's like, he's like crying, like <laughs> bowing and everything, you know, he's like going crazy and he like helps me up and I was just like patting myself and I'm like, I think I'm fine. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I think I'm fine. Like the windshield's wow. busted. I was like, I think I'm okay. That's I was like, I don't, yeah. And then um, I went to the, I, I eventually got myself to a hospital to check myself and uh, the only injury really was like the the seat of the bicycle, the the impression of the seat of the bicycle was bruised into my inner thigh to the point where like the logo of the seat was in my thigh. So like the force of the seat ejecting me off is the only real injury that I sustained. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So. How long ago was that? Uh, within the last 10 years too. Oh my God. Yeah. It was a friend's bike too. I had to walk the bike back to his, to him and be like, this, sorry, here's your, here's your bike in a, in a paper bag. <laughs> oh my God. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. But yeah, I mean the, the moral of the story really is like, you know, again, just it's a cliche to say live life every day, like as if it's your last, but you know, I can tell you from personal history, living two days, two separate days that were my last days that it's absolutely true. You know, you should really live every day like it's your last because they don't call you in advance to tell you like, today's your last day. It just sort of happens, yeah. you know? Yeah. And when it does, you should be prepared to be like, am I really... Actually, when the snowboarding accident happened, I was really in quite a bad place in my life in terms of work and profession. And I was letting the everyday stress of life get to me and mm. relationships and just everything was like stressing me the fuck out. I was like a real stress case, you know? Yeah. Um, so that really like was a, was a wake up call. Yeah. I, I could imagine. Yeah. How do you balance relationships now at this time in your life than compared to where before? 
Personal, like just personal relationships. Yeah. Uh, well, I finally found a woman who understands the world that I live in, you know, mm. um, and she's very, very supportive of it. And I guess that's not, she's also supportive of it, but she's also like an incredible woman for me. You know, like, I think that's not the hard part. There are other women that like can find supportive things, but then the question is, do you like that person? Right. Yeah. So I actually like this person a lot. <laughs> I love this person a lot and she supports me, which was the hard thing to do throughout yeah. my entire life. That's good. Yeah. And I'm actually, we're engaged and I'm getting married oh, soon. So congratulations. It's, it's good. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Awesome. When's the wedding? November. Coming up. Yeah. Coming up. Yep. That's great. Yeah. Very cool. want to dive back into a couple things uh, really quick. Uh, you mentioned the, like the street mm-hmm. mindset. What, what exactly is that in your perspective? So I think street culture and streetwear has like a, a very negative connotation to it. Like people start thinking about like, when you say streetwear, people have images in their head of either like, you know, baggy pants or pants that are too tight or, you know, depending on where you live or like, you know, go nowhere people or like not doing anything responsible or, you know, like not really benefiting culture in any way. Um, So I think it has a bad connotation and I haven't really been able to think of like the better sort of catch all phrase for it, but it's really anyone who is like of the, to me, it's like independent creatives is what I call it, you know? Mm. So it's anyone. And when I say creative also, I don't mean art or like pen to paper, you know, creative can, you could be an author and you're creative. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? You could actually be a doctor and be creative. Creative is really like, really what creative means is a new way of thinking that's different from the traditional way, you know? Mm. So it could be, you could be a creative lawyer if you want it to be, you know? Um, And independent meaning you don't necessarily do things the way they used to be done just because of that fact, you know, Mm. like you're, you're breaking out on your own and doing it irrespective of the way things used to be done, you know? So in other words, the prior rules don't apply to you. Right. So, and you're doing something creative. And I think that to me is really what street culture is all about. And when I started the brand, as I said, you know, there was like 20 or 30 other kids doing the same thing. And we were all in that same boat. Like Mm. we weren't, and for our particular standpoint, like we came out of an era where hip hop music and clothing was really big yeah. and hip hop clothing, meaning like uh, the really sort of typical hip hop clothing that you think of like Sean John or rock aware, like really baggy, huge logos. So we love the music, but we didn't love the clothing, mm. you know? And then we loved the anti-ness of skate and punk. Right. But we didn't necessarily prescribe to the way they looked. So we love the mentality of the Ramones and CBGBs, but we didn't want to look like that. You know Got what it. I mean? Yeah. So there was there was all these things, and then we love the um, the antiness of skate as well, in the sense that it wasn't team sports and baseball and football, and like it wasn't about the jocks. It was about the outcasts that were like, mm. you know, sort of um, excelling at that sport. You know, and it was much more about the individual versus about a, a full team. Yeah. You know, so we loved all of those things, I think, and we were trying to figure out a way to express ourselves using those as the seeds, as the grandfathers of the culture, if you will. Cool. Um, and so that's really, to me, where street culture comes from. It's like a, it's like a, an amalgamation of hip hop, um, punk rock and skate. All three are massive titans of industry now, like yeah. skateboarding, X Games, Mountain Dew, Beats by Dre, like it's a billion dollar industry. Hip hop obviously is a massive industry too. Yeah. You know, punk rock now, the definition of punk rock, like, you know, even Green Day is punk rock, you know, like John right. Barbados just took over the CBGB store, you know, like, yeah. so 
those are all titans of industry. But I think street culture right now, even though it's in its infancy, definitely has the possibility of being bigger than all three of those even combined because of the fact that we embrace all. So, you know, hip hop is traditionally a black thing. Punk rock is traditionally a white thing. Skate, you have to have this athletic ability to do skate, you know. And, you know, the fact that nowadays a kid from Harlem can wear baggy clothes and hold a skateboard mm. is is street culture. You know, that's yeah. street culture allowing that to happen. Ten years prior, that kid would have gotten his ass kicked for bringing a skateboard into Harlem. Yeah. You know, conversely, you know, white kid in the suburbs would have been ridiculed for listening to hip hop you know, 10 years prior, but now it's like, cool, you know? So yeah. that blending is what street culture is all about to me. And that's why I think it has the potential to be much greater than all of the three other things. Yeah. So it's, it's completely evolving as well. Yeah. It's a mashup and it's totally evolving. Yeah. Now, you know, I actually just had a really interesting lunch today with a friend talking about this, but now we're at the age where, you know, street culture, I would say is probably like around 15, 20 years old, let's say. Now we're just getting into the stage where, corporations are wising up to the fact that like there's this independent creative class there's this group of people that are very influential to others mm. and they're starting to tap in too and um obviously companies like nike and stuff were really early on it yeah. but i'm saying like even like big companies now like clorox or tide or gillette like they're hopping in on it too yeah. you know um so I i'm definitely seeing this swing shift of like bigger corporations recognizing it, which means more money will will get thrown into it, um, which has its good and its bad points, but I think it's good overall that like there's more eyeballs on this culture. Mm, yeah. So how did you get, you know, I saw you guys did a, collab a couple collaborations with Nike. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Like, how did you create that? I think, you know, by the time we started working with Nike, we were already like seven or eight years in as a brand. Mm. Uh, and Nike for whatever reason, is very good at, as a corporation of keeping their ears and eyes to the street. So I think they recognized that what we were doing was authentic, of high quality, legitimate, you know, to their product as well. You mm -hmm. know, I'm a sneakerhead. I've been a sneakerhead all my life. Um, I have my own clothing line. I have my own design studio. So yeah. like these things were all like check boxes for them, I would assume that mm -hmm. like, you know, Nike doesn't just call up people and be like, hey, you want to work with us and do a shoe? Like I think they fully <laughs> vet out why they work with certain people, you know? Yeah. So I think they, they saw what we were doing and they were like, you know, you guys know what you're doing, so we should do some work together. Mm -hmm. um, and it happened really organically, actually. I was at, I was actually, um, one of our clients back then was a, a magazine called The Fader Magazine. Mm -hmm. And I art directed like the first 20 issues of The Fader Magazine. Oh, wow. Yeah, I designed cool. every page. And I also did a lot of editorial writing for it. So I wanted to do an article about Japan, uh, Nike Japan specifically. Mm. Um, so I went out to Japan, met with Nike, and that's where the first introduction was like, hey, you know, you do all this cool stuff. We should do some stuff together. And that's exactly how it started. There was no pitch meeting or, you yeah. know, nothing like that. It was pretty organic. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Man, it's so f crazy how time flies. A couple of questions. What, you know, what what's your legacy? What do you want to leave people with? Uh, I think, like, you know, I've got a staff of 40 people. Mm. And I'd love to see a piece of this benefiting them in some way. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they could take a piece of this and really call it their own would be great. Um, the other thing is there's a lot of young people there that were in the same shoes as me when I was growing up mm. and not understanding that following your dreams 
and getting a paycheck at the same time is a is a distinct possibility. Uh, and I want to prove to kids that it's doable. You just yeah. have to have the sort of willpower to do it, you know. And there are some tools as well that you need to know. And I'm hoping that through what they observe of me or maybe what I give back in terms of talking or whatever, or like listening to things like this, yeah. that they can take a piece of that and it might change their life. Like yeah. it might just make them take that fork in the road in a different manner. Instead of making a right, they make a left, you know? Yeah. And if they do that, and then to be honest, I don't even care if one day they become the next Ralph Lauren and, you know, they forget how it happened. But to me, I just want to be able to like sort of begin those ripples in the ocean so that they start like reflecting other things and other people and stuff, you know? Yeah. And while that sounds very, um, it sounds very righteous and like, you know, nice of me to do that. It's actually a very selfish reason why I want to do that. <laughs> I, to me, it's like the only way staple and everything I create at a staple can really, really succeed is if there's an industry for it to succeed in. I can't mm. exist in a vacuum. So in order for staple to succeed, I need others with me. Yeah. Right? And hopefully in 20 years, when you young man have created a great thing. Hopefully I'm still crushing you competitively, <laughs> but at least there's like a competition. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. you know, like Uber, for example, is a great thing, right? But Uber doesn't exist without car services. Like you still need car services and drivers yeah. for Uber to exist. You know, like Google's an incredible thing, but you still need internet and computers for Google to exist. So like right. Staple might be a great thing, but I still need, street culture and young people who are into sneakers and thinking independently, I still need that. Yeah. If, if somehow, if some like mastermind Dilbert came out and convinced everyone to get a nine to five at, <laughs> at Pricewaterhouse and Coopers, you know, or like KPMG, yeah. streetwear would be fucked and I'd be fucked. Yeah. You know, like men's warehouse suits would be doing really well, but I'd be doing really bad. You know what I mean? So I have yeah. to like, selfishly, I do have to like big up the culture. Mm-hmm. And it, it looks good that there's like this sort of philanthropic thing that I'm doing, but really it's so that there's a culture for staple to exist in. Yeah. yeah that's great. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> People uh, are like, you're so nice. I'm like, no, really? I just, <laughs> I need you in so I could destroy you later. That's hilarious. Yeah. So one last question that I usually, that I ask every guest, especially in the world of arts and creative entrepreneurship, what is, what does live inspiration mean to you? Live inspiration? Yeah. Um, to me, live inspiration means never, ever turning off. You know, I think, um, I love it when I hear some people say like, uh, what are you going to do today? I'm going to go out and get inspired today. Like that doesn't happen for me like that. Like yeah. you can't tell yourself when you're going to get inspired. Getting inspired happens anytime it wants to happen, not yeah. when you want it to happen. Right. You know, so inspiration hits you whenever it wants. Um, and same with opportunity as well to me, you know? Yeah. So to me, live inspiration just means like never turn off 24 seven, always be ready to like have something hit you in the face that could potentially change your life. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Jeff, I thank you. I acknowledge you for being the difference that you are. Thank you very much. And inspiring me and other people and everybody listening here. Thank you. So where can we find you on the internet, interwebs as we just talked about? Yeah. So, um, if you still go to websites, uh, <laughs> what is a website? Yeah, website is this thing. No, okay. So you still go to websites, staplesdesign.com, staplepigeon.com is our is mm -hmm. our clothing line and the Reed Space. So R E E D. Uh, and then on social media, I'm at Jeff Staple 
and then at Staple Pigeon is the clothing line, and at Reed Space is the store. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you guys so much for tuning into today's episode of Shop Talk Radio with Jeff Staple. I'm your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you could help us spread the word by leaving a comment over on iTunes, sharing it on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, where you're listening to Shop Talk Radio. We'd love to see it. You can reply me at Nick Onkin on Instagram, hashtag Shop Talk Radio. And with that, we'll see you next time. Yeah.